welcome to Eddie Hurst's podcast version of The War of the Worlds. This is the show where I, Eddie Hurst, take apart H.G. Wells' beloved sci-fi novel, The War of the Worlds, by taking each chapter, popping it in a cement mixer with a bit of comedy guests, some music, some comedy songs, tangents based on little bits of the book that got me thinking, what does that mean? And I spent too long researching them. We mash the on button, sit all together, pretend that we're friends with all the other builders. All right, Gary, how was the football? It was a game. And build ourselves a lovely audio house. This episode, we have chapter 12, what I saw of the destruction of Weybridge and Shepperton. And despite what promises to be a boring title, the episode is anything but. It's action-packed. It's the most action-packed episode so far. In fact, I don't want to spend too much time talking at the intro because this is quite one of the longer episodes. So I'll just say we've got Tony coming back as the artillery man, Tony Wright, who you'll remember from the last uh, from the last chapter. We also have Jade Fernley, an improviser, actor, and radio presenter from Manchester coming along. So you'll hear her as lieutenant and some additional voices. If you're new to the show, welcome. Uh, thank you for listening. I would go back and listen from chapter one because to be honest this is chapter 12 of a serialized book so so listen at this point you all might be like oh what's going on here why are the martians what's the who's this artillery guy why does this narrator seem like he doesn't want to go back to his wife if you listen from chapter one it will all make sense if you're if you're a continued listener welcome back thanks for coming uh, do us a favor if you haven't already rate and review the podcast and give us a subscribe uh, it'll get the visibility of the podcast up and that's great for everyone so here we go open your ears Close your eyes. Actually, don't close your eyes if you're doing something that you need them open for. Take a seat or don't. It's up to you what you do. Just enjoy, just enjoy, enjoy the episode. Here we go. Enjoy the episode. Chapter 12. What I saw of the destruction of Weybridge and Shepperton. As the dawn grew brighter, we withdrew from the window from which we had watched the Martians and went very quietly downstairs. The artilleryman agreed with me that the house was no place to stay in. He proposed, he said, to make his way Londonward, and thence rejoin his battery number 12 of the horse artillery. Oh, don't leave me! Please, you can't leave! Can't you see, honey? This romance was never meant to last. It was one meal and then I'm out of here. Sorry, I still just love that this is the most romantically described moment in the book so far. Um... And I don't think he intended it to be. I don't think there's like any undercurrent in it. Uh, but it's it's fun to add that in for the for the flavour and colour of the story, right? My plan was to return at once to Leatherhead, and so greatly had the strength of the Martians impressed me that I had determined to take my wife to New Haven and go with her out of the country forthwith. No, to be fair, it is quite good of the narrator to remember his wife now, you know, after he shit the bed, broke the cart, hid in the bottom of his stairs, killed up in a bull at his house, then invited a total strange man into his house and spent the night with him. For I already perceived clearly that the country about London must inevitably be the scene of a disastrous struggle before such creatures as these could be destroyed. Between us and Leatherhead, however, lay the third cylinder, with its guarding giants. Had I been alone, I think I should have taken my chances and struck across country. But the artilleryman dissuaded me. It's no kindness to the right sort of wife, he said, to make her a widow. And in the end, I agreed to go with him, under cover of the woods, northward as far as Street Cobham before I parted with him. Thence I would make a big detour by Epsom to reach Leatherhead. Like, I mean, I know I keep bagging on the idea that uh, the, the narrator's marriage isn't going very well, but it's pretty bad when you have to be convinced by a man you've only met for 24 hours that you should play it safe to try and see your wife again. And, and also, part of this is coming from the fact that I know Wells wasn't necessarily very good at marriage, which we'll definitely go into at some point in this podcast, but... Oh, boy! <laughs> I should have started at once, but my companion had been in active service, and he knew better than me. He made me ransack the house for a flask, which he filled with whiskey. And we lined every available pocket with packets of biscuits and slices of meat. Then we crept out of the house and ran as quickly as we could down the ill-made road by which I had come overnight. If you're anything like me, then I am truly sorry for your affliction. But as you read about them packing away biscuits and slices of meat to eat, you probably thought, that's a... It's a weird combination of food to take along. I mean, like, I know British people are pretty famous for combining weird foods together, but, I mean, what, what's that going to be? Like a, a slice of pastrami and a custard cream? <laughs> a Jaffa cake and some smoked turkey? 
a chocolate hobnob and a slice of Billy Bear. <laughs> but no! These biscuits and slices of meat are not the same as the aforementioned divorced dad lunchbox leftovers, because we're gonna go back through the ages at what the hell a biscuit is and why it thinks it's so damn fancy all of a sudden. Power up the time machine, HG! We're going back again, baby! The word biscuit in English comes from the French biscuit. Ooh la la, I'm a biscuit de France. Um, they are fancy. Probably from when they invaded us in 1066. Never forget. Or maybe it's just from a completely separate time because we're geographically really close to each other so naturally there'll be an exchange of goods, people and culture which while sometimes can lead to friction also leads to great collaboration and sharing of ideas and passion and generally makes the world a much brighter and more diverse place to live. And the French got their word from the Latin. Textbooks open to page 63. Concentration popped in the bin. The Latin word is panis biscottis. Um, panis biscottis decimus meridius. Father to a murdered wife, husband to a fathered child, and I will have my revenge in this life or the next. Which translates to bread twice baked. Back in the early days of biscuits, it was less likely that you get a digestive and more likely you get a dry, crispy bit of bread. In Roman times, biscuits were used as a long-lasting compact ration you could take on a long journey or a... a, uh, road trip? <laughs> get, get it? Because, uh, Romans invented roads, so they'd, um... They'd have the first, first road trips. We're not In fact, for most of human history, the noble biscuit has been used not as an adornment for a saucer of tea, but as a provision for long journeys where food may be scarce. It was only in the Tudor period that we began to get a sweeter treat of a biscuit, and even then it was reserved for the landed gentry. All I can imagine when I wrote that is Henry VIII chowing down on a whole pack of pink wafers. And quite frankly, that sounds absolutely on brand for him. I've had so many of these, they should call me Henry the Waif! But the biscuit was primarily still a food for feeding an army on the move, and it remained that way until roughly the Victorian era. But what changed then? Well, let's do a quiz. Could it be A. Victorians were well posh and so needed a posh picky for their tea parties. B. The only way to get children to keep scrabbling under heavy machinery was with the invention of the fox's smiley face. Or C. The industrial revolution and global transport meant that availability of sugar and other necessary ingredients became more widespread, allowing a much greater population of the country to get access to pre-made packets and recipes. I mean, the answer is I would say C, but... Yeah, really, the other two could be just as right. Please, my lord, just to go on the family favourite box and I'll stick me head right up your chimneys. Thanks to centuries of exploiting sugar plantations across the globe, it became much easier for the less well-to-do but still quite well-to-do to have biscuits either baked for them or bought in. A perfect little bite of indulgence. So what am I saying here? That in this book the narrator is grabbing one of the precursors to McVitie's? Well, I mean, probably something along the lines of a digestive, or potentially a ration fit for a pirate king. Whilst it was around this time that biscuits ascended from edible cardboard to crunchy treat, they were still available and created as a long-lasting ration. The most common way I can find to describe this is something called hardtack. It wasn't a great meal, but it could last for ages. It was frequently used by sailors and was referred to as a sailor's biscuit, which definitely sounds like something much dirtier than what it is. Get dirty, booger! They were not a particularly enjoyable food source. Often they would remain solid and stale for so long there'd be maggots and worms living in them by the time a sailor got around to eating them. Although by then, maybe the protein, to be fair, added some flavor. So I'm assuming that that's what the soldier looked at and thought was the most appropriate food. Because if the narrator's chops are anything to go by, he's definitely grabbing just a wheel of cheese and a lamb shank. In which case? It's most likely he chose something like hardtack, or a longer-lasting, less buttery-based biscuit to go along with the slices of meat. And now the slices of meat! I found this a little easier to get my head round, as we still have the sort of meat that an army would take on a trip now. You know, you can call it cured, salted, dried. Honestly, call it whatever you want, it's a piece of meat, it no longer has any autonomy, feeling, or ears. We've been drying meat out for centuries. And it must be very dry by now then! <laughs> In Victorian times, there were no refrigerators, which is pretty obvious when you think about it, but I always have a bit of a moment where I can hold that thought in my head and still be surprised they didn't have food that you can only regularly consume if you have a way for keeping them cool for a long time. What do you mean? They drank drinks warm, perish the thought! Occasionally, you may get a house with a very cold cellar, or a cool box designed to keep things staying colder, but this wouldn't really have kept the food to temperatures that we need now. So instead, preserving food was done through salting, 
slowly drying on a low heat, or anything that either keeps it in a preservative like jelly or pickles. So, now we know what sort of food they're taking on the trip. Still, uh, all this talk about the food that they're going to take, it does make you wonder, what would it, uh, what would it taste like? That sort of stuff. If only somebody could, uh, if only somebody would go out of their way to, to make the food for us, that we could, we could try and communicate that in some sort of audio method. I'm going to have a bloody good go at making and eating hardtack with some jerky. Welcome to the section of the show that we're calling... Baking! Baking! Turn the oven on. Cut them out and then you stick some holes in them and then we take them. <laughs> you kick over your hoof and you go into the oven. Okay, so in here it's pretty solid. I'm trying to bite into it. Oh, no, that's not happening. I do not recommend that. If, if it was my option, I'd take a digestive and a slice of ham. That'd be my choice. Baking. What am I gonna do with all this hard tack now? The houses seemed deserted. In the road lay a group of three charred bodies close together, struck dead by the heat ray. And here and there were things that people had dropped: a clock, a slipper, a silver spoon, and the like poor valuables. Alright mate, bit harsh, they've just died, you don't need to slag off their possessions. At the corner turning upwards towards the post office, a little cart, filled with boxes and furniture, and horseless, heeled over on a broken wheel. A cash box had been hastily smashed open and thrown under the debris. Except the lodge at the orphanage, which was still on fire, none of the houses had suffered greatly here. The heat ray had shaved the chimney tops and passed. Yet, save ourselves, there did not seem to be a living soul on Maybury Hill. The majority of the inhabitants had escaped, I suppose, by way of the old Woking Road, the road I had taken when I drove to Leatherhead, or they had hidden. We went down the lane by the body of the man in black. That means the landlord from the last chapter that he found had died, not the man in black as in Johnny Cash or the guy from Westworld. Sodden now from the overnight hail, and broke into the woods at the foot of the hill. We pushed through these towards the railway without meeting a soul. The woods across the line were but the scarred and blackened ruins of woods. For the most part the trees had fallen, but a certain proportion still stood, dismal grey stems with brown foliage instead of green. Shadowing of a changed landscape from the Martian. Metaphor alert. On our side, the fire had done no more than scorch the nearer trees. It had failed to secure its footing. Ha <laughs> ha! Stupid clumsy fire! I mean, <clears throat> it's good that the, uh, the fire wasn't there to cause more destruction. In one place, the woodman had been at work on Saturday. Trees, felled and freshly trimmed, lay in a clearing with heaps of sawdust by the sawing machine and its engine. Hard by was a temporary hut, deserted. There was not a breath of wind this morning, and everything was strangely still. Even the birds were hushed. And as we hurried along, I and the artilleryman talked in whispers and looked now and again over our shoulders. Once or twice, we stopped to listen. After a time, we drew near the road, and as we did so, we heard the clatter of hooves. and saw through the tree stems three cavalry soldiers riding slowly towards Woking. Aww. We hailed them, and they halted while we hurried towards them. It was a lieutenant and a couple of privates of the 8th Hussars, with a stand like a the... with a stand like a theodolite, which the artilleryman told me was a heliograph. Hey, 
it's me, the explaining lab man. I've gone off to higher education and blown my mind. I can see all the colors of the rainbow, dude. So what's a theater light? Well, it's, it's like a sort of tripod stand. It's like what you put on the surveying equipment. And a heliograph? That's a mirror that you use to make mirrored signals from distant, faraway armies to make, like, sort of, like a sign. So, you know, like when you get a, a light bounces off your watch, man, and you see it, that's like what that is. It's, it's like capturing that, but deliberately doing it so someone can come from a distance. Okay, peace out with a trout. The role of the lieutenant and assorted voices will be performed by Jade Fernley. Eddie, is it going to matter in the slightest bit that I don't know the first thing about anything to do with dogs? Yes. Oh, shit. <laughs> no, no, it's not. No, no, it's fine. I think the thing, the thing with War of the Worlds, I, I found is that I don't think I, I didn't think at least I really knew all that much about it. But then as I've read it along and seen stuff like, it's affected so many things that you probably know more about it than like, have you ever played Space Invaders? Uh, yeah, that old like retro game. Yeah, that's based on War of the Worlds. Oh, okay. So you're already, you're like halfway there. Oh. Wow, uh, you. Have, you, have you ever seen anything that's got aliens? Oh, yeah, loads of stuff, yeah. There you go, you're in. So all you need to know is that it's like aliens invading, yeah. sure, but <laughs> it's Victorian, isn't it? Victorian aliens. So they don't show any ankle. Yeah, 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 no <laughs> ankle. They don't actually have ankles, that's how... <laughs> so is it like a bit steampunky, because that's what comes to mind? yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's it like it wouldn't be seen as steampunk back then, obviously. But the 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 only technology that Wells knew at the time was steam powered. Like you know, if you think the biggest technological advancement that they had was like the train. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then it's got these creatures that are like they have these tanks that are on three legs. Um, the most efficient number of legs. Are you giving me FOMO? Where's my extra leg? <laughs> yeah, they sort of just pump around <laughs> just shoulder popping like NSYNC yeah 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 it's the you've got Timberlake knocking along there in this little pod it's gonna be me <laughs> tripod Timberlake you're you're playing you're playing a bunch of roles for Jade um so thank you very and much am I, am I just reading for the roles that you that, that you've highlighted for me yeah I mean if you want to audition for anything else <laughs> uh, <laughs> feel free to <laughs> so I just really want to show you my range what what's your favourite character to do? Um, so straight away comes to mind is Mrs Doyle from Father Ted. Oh, <laughs> yeah, like she is iconic, and Lynn from Alan Partridge. Oh, yeah, just, yeah. Uh, some of the best women in anything ever. Like they're also quite like male characters. They're quite like silly male characters. I know anyone who's ever played like a grumpy, belligerent homeless man. I always find that quite funny. Just before we start, so um, have you ever been in the army before? Ah. Uh, not that I know of. Um, okay. No, and I imagine if I ever was, I'd ring the bell quite fast. I don't want to be there. Yeah, fair enough. The fa the famous army quit bell. Yeah, the quit bell. I'd ring be ringing it within half yeah. an hour. I'd be like, this was a mistake. I thought I was going to the zoo. <laughs> <laughs> You're the first men I've seen coming this way this morning, said the lieutenant. What? Roy. His voice and face were eager. The men behind him stared curiously. The artilleryman jumped down the bank and into the road and saluted. I'm destroyed last night, sir. Have been hiding. Trying to rejoin battery, sir. You'll come in sight of the Martians, I expect. About half a mile along this road. What the dickens are they like? Giants in armour, sir. Hundred feet high. Three legs and a body like aluminium. With a mighty great head in a hood, sir. Get out! Said the lieutenant. What confounded nonsense! You'll see, sir. They carry a kind of box, sir, that shoots fire and strikes you dead. What? Do you mean a gun? No, sir. And the artilleryman began a vivid account of the heat ray. Halfway through, the lieutenant interrupted him and looked up at me. I was still standing on the bank by the side of the road. It's perfectly true, I said. Well said the lieutenant. I suppose it's my business to see it too. Look here. To the artilleryman. We're detailed here clearing people out of their houses. You'd better go along and report yourself to Brigadier General Marvin. Tell him all you know. He's at Weybridge. 
Know the way? I do, I said, and he turned his horse southward again. Half a mile, you say? said he. At most, I answered, and pointed over the treetop southward. He thanked me and rode on, and we saw them no more. Farther along we came upon a group of three women and two children in the road, busy clearing out a labourer's cottage. They had got hold of a little hand truck, and were piling it up with unclean-looking bundles and shabby furniture. They were all too assiduously engaged to talk to us as we passed. By Byfleet Station, we emerged from the pine trees. That's, we're beside Byfleet Station, not by Byfleet Station. Bye Byfleet Station! And found the country calm and peaceful under the morning sunlight. We were far beyond the reach of the heat ray there, and had it not been for the silent desertion of some of the houses, the stirring movement of packing and others, and the knot of soldiers standing on the bridge over the railway and staring down the line towards Woking, the day would have seemed very like any other Sunday. Had it not been for the complete occupation of the army, and the droves of evacuees, and the cold dread of war, and a lot of general ennui and panic, it'd just be like any other day if it wasn't for the main things that this whole book's about. I mean, I know that I know that actually the message of that is meant to be that even in what would appear an extreme situation, life still continues in some sort of normality is the point of that. But I'll be honest, I've never been in a situation like that. Definitely not in 2020 have I uh, seen seen completely bizarre events unfold before me, and then life appear to attempt to carry on as normal. Nah! Several farm wagons and carts were moving creakily along the road to Adelstone, and suddenly, through the gate of a field we saw, across a stretch of flat meadow, six twelve-pounders standing neatly at equal distances pointing towards Woking. The gunners stood by the guns waiting, and the ammunition wagons were at a business-like distance. The men stood almost as if under inspection. Uh, just to let you know, a 12-pounder is a gun. Yeah, you probably realise that there, but to give you an idea of it, it's like, you know the classic cannon, like the Napoleonic War cannon? It's that type. It's the, uh, it's a bit fancier than a castle cannon, but it's the, it's the Primo cannon, baby! That's good, said I. They'll get one fair shot at any rate. Um, I'd just like to point out the wildly changing levels of success that the narrator has. You know, just a couple of chapters ago, he thought that the humans were going to wipe him out dead easy. Now, uh, one shot, that's a good result. The artilleryman hesitated at the gate. I shall go on. He said, farther on towards Weybridge, just over the bridge, there were a number of men in white fatigue jackets throwing up a long rampart and more guns behind. It's bows and arrows against the lightning anyhow, said the artilleryman. They haven't seen that fire beam yet. The officers who were not actively engaged stood and stared over the treetops southwestward, and the men digging would stop every now and again to stare in the same direction. Byfleet was in a tumult. People packing and a score of hussars, some of them dismounted, some on horseback, were hunting them about. Three or four black government wagons with crosses in white circles and an old omnibus, among other vehicles, were being loaded in the village street. So I couldn't, I couldn't really find what the white, what the white crosses in white circles meant. My only, the only thing that I could see that was in a, a, to assume for it is a sort of red cross thing. So you know, like an ambulance kind of support, support or aid or aid vehicle. Uh, the other thing online I could find for a white cross was a was a Celtic cross, uh, which has been used by white supremacists as their their group symbol. So I'm assuming it's not that. Then again, it was a different time. There were scores of people, most of them sufficiently sabbatical to have assumed their best clothes. The soldiers were having the greatest difficulty in making them realise the gravity of their position. We saw one shriveled old fellow with a huge box and a score or more of flower pots containing orchids, angrily expostulating with the corporal who would leave them behind. I stopped and gripped his arm. Alright, so if you get your bingo cards up, alright, so we've had, uh, so far we've had, uh, Wells has mentioned, uh, the tough marriage, there's been a hint at that, and what have we got here, three, two, one, oh yes, two swans, it is of course, H.G. Wells' contempt for the general public within the writing of the narrator. Anybody got that? We're coming up to a full line, and Margaret might win that dartboard yet. <laughs> Do you know what's over there? I said, pointing at the pine tops that hid the Martians. Hey! said he, turning, 
I was explaining these is valuable. Death! I shouted. Death is coming! Death! And leaving him to digest that if he could, I hurried on after the artilleryman. At the corner I looked back. The soldier had left him, and he was still standing by his box, with the pots of orchids on the lid of it, and staring vaguely over the trees. No one in Weybridge could tell us where the headquarters were established. The whole place was in such confusion as I had never seen in any town before. Cars, carriages everywhere, the most astonishing miscellany of conveyances and horseflesh, the respectable inhabitants of the place, men in golf and boating costumes, wives prettily dressed, were packing, riverside loafers energetically helping, children excited and, for the most part, highly delighted at this astonishing variation on their Sunday experiences. In the midst of it all, the worthy vicar was very pluckily holding an early celebration, and his bell was jangling out above the excitement. When I first read this bit, I thought uh, that Wells was doing like a deliberate difference in the town that was meant to be sort of like a look at class and wealth within the country. You know, how the authorities treat them differently and how the information causes different responses. Whereas the Byfleet residents have been forced to escape, taking only their lively possessions with them, but ultimately failing to understand why they have to leave, the carefree middle classes of Weybridge are treating the change as sort of a novelty, something that they don't think directly affects them. It's just a bit of a change in their lifestyle that will then return. Uh, but it turns out that isn't quite the case. Anyway, here's what I found out about the areas of Byfleet and Weybridge now to give you an idea of, of how posh they are. Byfleet has an average house price of between 400 to 420,000 pounds. Weybridge, on the other hand, has an average house price of 813 to 900,000 pounds. Byfleet house prices there are pretty bonkers expensive, but Weybridge is like bonkers squared. Bonkers, bonkers, baby. That's based on the latest sales, and there's like a difference there of around 200%. Weybridge often turns up in top places to live in Surrey, and West Byfleet is often described as a town dominated by middle class snobs. And also that everybody there is either retired or middle aged. According to a very heated local argument, you don't need to hear about local politics. Just know that Weybridge is the posher one nowadays. But here's where things get a bit trickier. I thought, oh right, well we've got house price sales now, I'll just look at like deeds and records of what sales are like back then. But they didn't really sell houses in the same way in Victorian times, right? Especially not in like villages and, and more rural areas, and even if they did, it would be like whole estates sold from one old dusty aristocrat to another probably nouveau riche factory owner. Making it pretty difficult to figure out how much the house prices cost. Yeah, dingus! So I went back and saw what other historic information I could find. Weybridge is in the Doomsday Book, which was Britain's first ever census record from William the Conqueror following the invasion of 1066. It was a way for him to figure out taxes for the local people in the country. Which also makes it win the award for the coolest name to most boring thing ever, beating out tough competition from Wolf Blitzer the news reporter and the name Combine Harvester. In the Doomsday Book, Weybridge was said to have six hides, which is land enough to support a family house, one and a half plows, 32 acres of meadow, and wood worth nine hogs. Now, I'll explain that what that means is that you've got enough space to, to, to farm a pig in there, so that field has got enough area for, for, for a pig to live in. Comparatively, Byfleet was also in the Doomsday Book and had, get this, two and a half cultivated hives, one church, one mill rendering five shillings per year, Whoa! one and a half fisheries with 325 eels, six acres of meadow, and woodland worth ten hogs. I mean, you can see a clear winner here, guys, right? Look at the difference in hogs! And it's got a mill. I know where I'm gonna live. I'm going Byfleet, baby! I, I have no idea what I'd do with 325 eels, though. Definitely cannot eat eel for nearly every day of the year. But that's not to say I won't try. Admittedly, that was a record published in 1086. So it's about four times as many years between 1086 and the War of the Worlds published date to our present time and the events that take place in the War of the Worlds. Moving slightly closer to that time, it's a little tricky for me to find information directly without being able to travel down to the local history library of Woking and rifling through the census records to get an idea of the atmos of the town. And I'll be honest, if I were to do that, I'm not sure how well the librarian would take to me going, I'm trying to figure out in Weybridge and Byfleet which is posh and which is a lord of total utter no. Especially considering that that's not really a real phrase to say in the 
human language. So here's what I got from online records. Weybridge train station opened in 1838. Weybridge had a population in 1831 of 930, which then grew by 1891 to 3,944. It was also the first town to get wholly lit by electricity. So it's not a massive town, but you could defo have a go on the playstations. Historical note! Victorians did not have playstations, and even if they did, the games would be sh-rubbish. What games would they have, you say? Super Scavenger Land 3000. Lunge through the cotton, weave at the right time, or you're gonna lose an arm and have to live with the consequences. I crumble. Drunky Kong. The local drunk is chucking out barrels of ale. As a local member of the newly established Bobby Police Force, you need to put a stop to his antics by beating him to within an inch of his life. Grand Theft Horse. Steal a horse. Kill a sex worker. Watch as local towns are transformed and changed as a result of the Industrial Revolution. Be a cowboy. Wait, no, that one's just Red Dead Redemption, innit? There's a website I found called Woking History where Ian Wakeford has actually been through all the War of the Worlds book and pinpoints the exact location where the book takes place along with some old photos. And that's really helpful for Byfleet, but immediately stops before Weybridge because Weybridge, as everyone should know, is not and never will be part of Woking no matter how much it goddamn wants to be. But we already know about Weybridge. So let's look at Byfleet. What would it be like back then? Byfleet had their train station open in 1887, but would have been known as Byfleet and Woodham. The closest thing to Byfleet we have nowadays is an area known as Byfleet West. Byfleet's more of a general area than a specific place. Byfleet would really come into its own with the motor racing industry, but this happens in 1906 after the creation of the Brooklyn's motor racing track. And that in itself is a good decade before the Martian invasion. So both Byfleet and Weybridge were pretty small villages that would only have been developed into towns and areas that we know of over the course of the 20th century. Which is pretty unhelpful for me. And us reading, because then that means that Wells wasn't actually putting this in as sort of like a reflection on different areas and how they lived, because at the time anyone reading, you'd be able to see, well, they're fairly comparable areas, really. I mean, one of them's got light bulbs and the other has gas lights, so that's kind of the difference. Whereas now you could look at Weybridge as a much posher area than Byfleet, but, I mean, really, they're, 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 they're still fairly, both of them are still fairly posh southern towns. The reason there's such a huge difference between these areas in the book is probably to do with the fact that Weybridge, as has and always will be, is not in Woking. So really what it is is just seeing the response of the army and the evacuation and the, the, the threat of the Martians being growing and travelling out of the Woking area into more locations across the UK. Psst. Hey, Eddie, it seems like you've done a really large amount of research to find a pretty underwhelming conclusion as to why these areas are represented as differently. Didn't you even email the guy who writes that Woking History website to ask about this? Didn't he blindly reject an interview? Surely you regret your life decisions at this point. You've never even been to Woking, have you? Would you even plan to go to Woking? <laughs> Good one, internal monologue. And to those questions, I just say, let's get back to the book. I and the artilleryman, seated on the step of the drinking fountain, made a very passable meal upon what we had brought with us. Ooh, alfresco lunch, very nice. Patrols of soldiers, here no longer hussars but grenadiers in white, were warning people to move now or take refuge in their cellars as soon as the firing began. We saw as we crossed the railway bridge that a growing crowd of people had assembled in and about the railway station, and the swarming platform was piled with boxes and packages. The ordinary traffic had been stopped, I believe, in order to allow of the passage of troops and guns to Chertsey. And I have heard since that a savage struggle occurred for places in the special trains that were put on at a later hour. I mean, that sounds like your standard British train line now, right? <laughs> we remained at Weybridge until midday, and at that hour we found ourselves at the place near Shepperton Lock, where the Way and Thames join. Part of the time we spent helping two old women to pack a little cart. Sorry, mate, were you not meant to be going to rescue your wife? The Way had a treble mouth, and at this point boats are to be hired and there was a ferry across the river. On the Shepperton side was an inn with a lawn, and beyond that the tower of Shepperton Church, it had been replaced by a spire, rose above the trees. Here we found an excited and noisy crowd of fugitives. As yet the flight had not grown to a panic, but there were already far more people than all the boats going to and fro could enable to cross. People came carrying a small outhouse door between them, with some of their household goods piled thereon. One man told us he meant to try and get away from Shepperton Station. There was a lot of shouting, and one man was even jesting. Heaven forbid! Hey, hey, don't mind me, just having a bit of a laugh. 
the idea people seemed to have was that the Martians were simply formidable human beings, who might attack and sack the town, but to be certainly destroyed in the end. Every now and then, people would glance nervously across the way at the meadows towards Chertsey, but everything over there was still. Uh, just in case anybody's doing like a, a book report or something, and you've decided to crib the notes up of here, I mean, I don't know why you have, but uh, thanks for listening, I, I guess. Uh, that'd be a good point to say there's a nice little contrast in the writing, you know, between the, the, the panic and the, the busyness of people and the stillness of the Martian mystery, a, a sort of cool, creepy confidence. But also, come on, make your own notes. I'm a man who thought until I was 23 that the phrase was, you get more bees with honey than you do vinegar, rather than you get more flies than you do honey with vinegar. Why, why would bees need the honey? They've got loads of honey. If anything, they'd probably prefer the vinegar. Across the Thames, except just where the boats landed, everything was quiet, in vivid contrast with the Surrey side. The people who landed there from the boats went tramping off down the lane. The big ferry boat had just made a journey. Three or four soldiers stood on the lawn of the inn, staring and jesting at the fugitives, without offering to help. The inn was closed, as it was now within prohibited hours. What's that? Cried a boatman, and... Shut up, you fool! Said a man near me to a yelping dog. Then the sound came again, this time from the direction of Chertsey. A muffled thud, the sound of a gun. The fighting was beginning. Almost immediately, unseen batteries across the river to our right, unseen because of the trees, took up the chorus, firing heavily one after the other. A woman screamed. Everyone stood arrested by the sudden stir of the battle, near us and yet invisible to us. Nothing was to be seen save flat meadows, cows feeding unconcernedly for the most part, and silvery pollard willows motionless in the warm sunlight. The soldiers will stop him! Said a woman beside me, doubtfully. A haziness rose over the treetops. Then suddenly we saw a rush of smoke far away up the river, a puff of smoke that jerked up into the air and hung. And forthwith the ground heaved underfoot, and a heavy explosion shook the air, smashing two or three windows in the houses near, and leaving us astonished. Here they are! Shouted a man in a blue jersey. Yonder! Do you see them yonder? Quickly, one after the other, one, two, three, four of the armoured Martians appeared. Wait, what? There's four of them now? This is amazing! Uh, but also, it's, it's, it's very bad news for the people, and we should really be focusing on that bit. Far away over the little trees, the flat meadows that stretched across Chertsey, and striding hurriedly towards the river. Little cowled figures they seemed at first, going with a rolling motion and as fast as flying birds. Then, advancing obliquely towards us, came a fifth. Holy crap! Their armoured bodies glittered in the sun as they swept swiftly forward upon the guns, growing rapidly larger as they drew nearer. One on the extreme left, the remotest that is, flourished a huge case high in the air, and the ghostly, terrible heat ray I had already seen on Friday night smote towards Chertsey and struck the town. At the sight of these strange, swift and terrible creatures, the crowd near the water's edge seemed to be, for a moment, horror-struck. There was no screaming or shouting, but a silence. Then a hoarse murmur and a movement of feet, a splashing from the water, a man, too frightened to drop the portmanteau he was carrying on his shoulder, swung round and sent me staggering with a blow from the corner of his burden. Yet again, the narrator showing that no matter where he goes, he will always manage to get knocked over by a random member of the public. A woman thrust at me with her hand and rushed past me. I turned with the rush of the people, but I was not too terrified for thought. The terrible heat ray was in my mind. To get underwater! Get underwater! I shouted, unheeded. I faced about again and rushed towards the approaching Martian, rushed right down the gravelly beach and headlong into the water. Others did the same. A boatload of people putting back came leaping out as I rushed past. The stones under my feet were muddy and slippery, and the river was so low that I ran perhaps 20 feet, scarcely waist deep. Then, as the Martians towered overhead, scarcely a couple of hundred yards away, I flung myself forward under the surface. The splashes of the people in the boats leaping into the river sounded like thunderclaps in my ears. People were landing hastily in both sides of the river. 
but the Martian machine took no more notice for the moment of the people running this way and that than a man would of the confusion of ants in a nest against which his foot has kicked. God, that's a difficult sentence to say. When, half suffocated, I raised my head above water, the Martian's hood pointed at the batteries that were still firing across the river, and as it advanced it swung loose what must have been the generator of the heat ray. In another moment it was on the bank, and in a stride wading halfway across. The knees of its foremost legs bent at the farther bank, and in another moment it had raised itself to full height again, close to the village of Shepperton. Forthwith the six guns which, unknown to anyone on the right bank, had been hidden behind the outskirts of that village, fired simultaneously. The sudden near concussion, the last close upon the first, made my heart jump. The monster was already rising the case, generating the heat ray as the first shell burst six yards above the hood. I gave a cry of astonishment. I saw and thought nothing of the other four Martian monsters. My attention was riveted upon the nearer incident. Simultaneously, two other shells burst in the air near the body as the hood twisted round in time to receive, but not in time to dodge, the fourth shell. The shell burst clean in the face of the thing. The hood bulged, flashed and whirled off in a dozen tattered fragments of red flesh and glittering metal. Wait, take that, you damn Martians! Oi, oi, uh, 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 I mean, I mean, sorry, war is terrible and, and all, all types of violence is, is deplorable. This truly is a tragedy to, to witness. And I'm sure the narrator feels the same way. Hit! Shouted I with something between a scream and a cheer. A, scr a scree? Or would it be a treem? I prefer, I think I prefer treem. A treem. Yeah, let's go for that. I heard answering shouts from the people in the water about me. Oi, get down, you knobhead! They're still fighting, you bloody idiot! Has anyone seen my portmanteau? I could have leaped out the water with that momentary exultation. Well, hey man, sorry I'm late. Time got away from me. So, uh, portmanteau, as meant to say a little bit a while ago, it's, it's like a sort of suitcase, but you open it up and there's like a drawer and there's a little hanging bit so you can put your suits and things in. It's more of an old-fashioned style of, of taking things before we had irons so you keep them all flat and presentable. It's sort of like a travelling wardrobe in a, in a way. Okay, <laughs> radical man, I'll see you later. Scoop to the dube, hang loose. The decapitated colossus reeled like a drunken giant, but it did not fall over. It recovered its balance by a miracle and no longer heeding its steps and with the camera that fired the heat ray now rigidly upheld, it reeled swiftly upon Shepperton. The living intelligence, the Martian within the hood, was slain and splashed to the four winds of heaven. And the thing was now a mere intricate device of metal whirling to destruction. It drove along in a straight line, incapable of guidance. It struck the tower of Shepperton Church, smashing it down as the impact of a battering ram might have done. Swerved aside, blundered on and collapsed with tremendous force into the river out of my sight. It looks like human attacks actually work on these things. You know what? I think we might stand a chance. A violent explosion shook the air, and a spout of water, steam, mud and shattered metal shot far up into the sky. As the camera of the heat ray hit the water, the latter had immediately flashed into steam. In another moment, a huge wave, like a muddy tidal bore but almost scaldingly hot, came sweeping round the bend upstream. I saw people struggling shorewards and heard their screaming and shouting faintly above the seething roar of the Martian's collapse. For a moment, I heeded nothing of the heat, forgot the patent need of self-preservation. I splashed through the tumultuous water, pushing aside a man in black to do so. Another man in black? Come on, narrator. I know you got a lot going on right now, but you need to book up your descriptions, unless this is the body of the landlord, in which case you need to write the spin-off novel about how this guy's body got weekend at Burnie all the way around Woking. Until I could see round the bend, half a dozen deserted boats pitched aimlessly upon the confusion of the waves. The fallen Martian came into sight downstream, lying across the river, and for the most part submerged. Thick clouds of steam were pouring off the wreckage, and through the tumultuous whirling wisps I could see, intermittently and vaguely, the gigantic limbs churning the water and flinging a splash and spray of mud and froth into the air. The tentacles swayed and struck like living arms, and, save for the helpless purposelessness of these movements, 
It was as if some wounded thing were struggling for its life amid the waves. Enormous quantities of ruddy brown fluid were shooting up the noisy jets out of the machine. I'm assuming that the red, like, it's meant to be from, uh, from, from Mars, but actually uh, red, red oil is, is something that you'll standardly see in a lot of um, hydraulics and things like that, which reminds me of a, a, a story about um, in Disneyland when they were making uh, Abraham Lincoln. Uh, they were doing famous moments of Abraham Lincoln, so they had an animatronic Lincoln stand up and give a chat and then sit down. And when it worked, people absolutely lost their minds. They were like, oh my God, this robot walked into the audience. But... Uh, before then, when they were practicing, uh, they had to show Walt Disney their progress, and uh, it wasn't going so great. And and one of the pipes with the oil in had had, had snapped out of Lincoln's internal casing, and so he ended up uh, getting oil everywhere, all down the shirt. So it looked like Abraham Lincoln was bleeding all over, uh, like a robot bleeding Lincoln. Uh, it's a bit of fun, isn't it? Ah, Lincoln! He's been shot again, but he's a robot. Ah! <laughs> Imagine that. All right, back to the book. My attention was diverted from this death flurry by a furious yelling, like that of the thing called a siren in our manufacturing town. A man, knee deep near the towing path, shouted inaudibly to me and pointed. Looking back, I saw the other Martians advancing with gigantic strides down the riverbank from the direction of Chertsey. The Shepparton guns spoke this time unavailingly. At that, I ducked at once under the water and, holding my breath until movement was an agony, blundered painfully ahead under the surface as long as I could. The water was in a tumult about me. If there's one takeaway from this chapter, it's that wealth is absolutely loving the word tumult and tumultuous. You know, it, it's kind of like if you, um, if, it, it, you know when you learn a new word and you're really excited to use it in sentences, uh, it's like he's, he's learned tumultuous and tumult, and he's just going book wild for it. I mean, like, it's got to have been in here about eight times at least. And rapidly growing hotter. When for a moment I raised my head to take breath and throw the hair and water from my eyes, the steam was rising in a whirling white fog that at first hid the Martians altogether. The noise was deafening. Then I saw them dimly, colossal figures of grey, magnified by the mist. They had passed me, and two were stooping over the frothing, tumultuous ruins of their comrade. Oh, they're coming to see their fallen friend. You know what? Maybe these Martians aren't so different from us humans after all. The third and fourth stood beside him in the water, one perhaps 200 yards from me, the other towards Leyland. The generators of the heat rays waved high, and the hissing beams smoked down this way and that. Ah shit, they are just like us, run! The air was full of sound, a deafening and confusing conflict of noises. The clangorous din of the Martians, the crash of the falling houses, the thud of trees, fences, sheds flashing into flame, and the crackling roar of fire. Dense black smoke was leaping up to mingle with the steam from the river, and as the heat ray went to and fro over Weybridge, its impact was marked by flashes of incandescent white that gave place at once to a smoky dance of lurid flames. The nearer houses still stood intact, awaiting their fate, shadowy, faint, and pallid in the steam, with the fire behind them going to and fro. For a moment, perhaps, I stood there, breast high in the almost boiling water, dumbfounded at my position, hopeless of escape. Through the reek I could see the people who had been with me in the river scrambling out of the water through the reeds, like little frogs hurrying through the grass from the advance of a man, all running to and fro in utter dismay on the towing path. Then suddenly the white flashes of the heat ray came leaping towards me. The houses caved in as they dissolved at its touch and darted out flames. The trees changed to fire with a roar. The ray flickered up and down the towing path, licking off the people who ran this way and that, and came down the water's edge not 50 yards from where I stood. It swept across the river to Shepparton, and the water in its track rose in a boiling wheel crested with steam. I turned shoreward. In another moment, the huge wave, well nigh at the boiling point, had rushed upon me. I screamed aloud and scalded, half-blinded, agonized. My foot stumbled. It would have been the end. I fell helplessly, in full sight of the Martians, upon the broad, bare, gravelly spit that runs down to mark the angle of the Way and Thames. I expected nothing but death. I have the dim memory of a foot of a Martian coming down within a score of yards of my head, driving straight into the loose gravel, whirling it this way and that and lifting again, of a long suspense. 
and then of four carrying the debris of their comrade between them, now clear and then presently faint through a veil of smoke, receding interminably, as it seemed to me, across a vast space of river and meadow, and then, very slowly, I realized that by a miracle, I had escaped. an episode there was martians there was the heat ray there was attacking there was general public bumping into the narrator there was everything peak chapter of the book here this is like the mega this is the this is the meat in the roast dinner that is war of the worlds thank you so much for listening guys i hope you've enjoyed the episode uh we'll be joining you next time for chapter 13 how i fell in with the curate I don't know, perhaps he is uh, what you might know, who you might know as the parson from the musical version, or you might not know him at all. Either way, it's fine. You don't need to have any qualification ahead of time. A big thank you to Tony and Jade for coming on for this episode. Tony is, as I said, Tony is a stand-up comedian. You can follow him on Twitter and Instagram at Tony underscore right 97. He's also got a YouTube channel and a sketch group called Somali and Me. They're on Twitter as well. It's at Somali and Me. The sketches are very funny. Jade is a bit of a comedy polymath. You can find her all over the show. Uh, she's on BBC Radio Manchester occasionally. You can find her on Twitter at the Jade Arena and also on Instagram at the Jade Fernley. She is also the co-creator behind a Manchester-based improv group called Murder Inc. You can follow them on Twitter at Murder Inc. Improv or on the Facebook page Murdering, where fans of the page vote each month for what setting they want. And also they'll be starting to do, I believe, possibly something online. So keep your eyes and ears peeled. Well, keep your eyes peeled for that. You can follow me on Twitter at Eddie Hurst on Instagram, and I've got a Facebook page for that. It's E-D-Y-H-U-R-S-T. Please subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. Give us a rating and a review and share us on social media. Let people know. Let people know about it. Why not? It costs you nothing, but it means a lot. I'll see you next episode. Uh, we've got we've got a special Halloween one coming up and we've got chapter 13, How I Fell In With The Curate. So see you in a bit, guys. Bye. Eddie Hurst podcast version of The War of the Worlds is created and produced by Eddie Hurst, written by Eddie Hurst and H.G. Wells. Our theme tune is by Ichabod Wolf and it's Fall of Saigon. You can get that on Bandcamp if you want to. Another special thanks to Tony Wright and Jay for coming on to the show. Please like, subscribe and rate. See you next time. Bye!